You're listening to the Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts, Howard Schweitzer and Mark Alderman. Guys, Saturday, May 2nd, very uh, beautiful Saturday here in Bethesda, Maryland. How about by you guys? Sun is shining. Howard, I'm looking at the ocean. I'm in Cape May, New Jersey, and the barriers to get on the beach are down. I think that's a good sign. I'm not sure whether we can go on the, whether we're allowed to go on the beach, but they took the barriers down. We'll, we'll bail you out, Jim. Let's start. It's fine. It's fine. My okay. kids will be on the beach today for sure. Sounds good. So, Jim, what do you make of the latest thing with Joe Biden? The, the latest big issue with Joe Biden, I think, is... You know, it couldn't have ha- it couldn't have been broiling at a better time for him when people are paying attention to, you know, COVID. Um, I think his response came at a time when, you know, when nobody's really paying attention to what's happening with Joe Biden. And, you know, I think it's going to it'll it'll rear its head again in September, October, November, and we'll see how it shakes out. Well, it, I mean, and Mark, I think Trump Mark, is obviously the right guy to raise that issue, Jim. I, I think it plays to his strengths. So definitely. We, yeah. We look forward to the, I'm not the sure. I mean, well, shameful, been, indecent. Uh, I just think the reaction of Democrats, Mark is a little hypocritical given what the scouring that, that, that Brett Kavanaugh went through, through his hearings and everything else. I, I just think now some of these Democrats are coming forward that were these champions of the Me Too movement. And now it's kind of nothing but silence. That's all. Mark, do you think that the campaign itself put it out there? No, I do. I, don't. I do. I, I think that. Wait, which campaign? Yeah, Biden I do. Campaign. Th- no, I think the other campaign did. I think. No, this is the wrong time to put it out there. Yeah. I think. They put it out there between getting the nomination and the general to get it out of the way. Doubt it, but I do think that what Jim said is true. What you're saying is true just as a matter of political science, of campaign politics. If you got to deal with this, now's a good time to deal with it. He is dealing with it. I don't believe it happened. I don't believe that there's going to be any more evidence. Oh gosh, uh, I mean, I, can we already. replay what he said about Kavanaugh? Can but, we replay that, Jim? Not, not a good issue for the Trump campaign. Well, I, I think I don't think it's a great issue for Democrats to be out there defending Biden when all they did was jump the conclusions on Kavanaugh. So, look, we can we can debate about this all day long, Mark, but. You know, there's a lot of hypocrisy running around all the way around on this one. It, it's politics, so there's always hypocrisy. Of That's part of the fun. Um, okay, so this week, Jim, on Fox News, Jared Kushner said, again, we're on the other side of the medical aspect of this, and I think that we've achieved all the different milestones that are needed. So the federal government rose to the challenge and this is a great success story and i think that's really what needs to be told what say you jared kushner should stick to policy right and, <laughs> he shouldn't <laughs> no jared he shouldn't kushner. which policy I, I, he, spectacular well, success in the mid-east 
Look, spectacular. I, I, he reinvented I, government. That worked well. Which policy? The cutting of the bureaucratic bread tape in Washington is largely due to the work that he's been doing. He's been doing some very good things as it relates to you know, moving the embassy in Israel, right? I mean, that that's that's credited to some of the work that he was doing. But being out there in front, he is not a press person, never has been. And, you know, the characterizations that he made were were not the right ones at the right time. But I do think that, you know, that, you know, there has to be some acknowledgement of the good work. And I've even heard you, Mark, of all people, talk about the good work of this administration on the economic front and on the political front, especially Steve Mnuchin. So I just want you to say something good. Fair and enough. Go uh, back. Well, if my choice with Jared Kushner is policy behind the scenes or front and center press briefings, tough call, tough call as a political matter, which is better for the Democrats. I kind of like him out there, Jim. I, I think he's a real asset to his father's reelect. But I will say, because I have said it, you and I have said it together on a number of uh, calls this week, I, I do think Steve Mnuchin deserves great credit for finding a way with Nancy Pelosi to get the CARES Act done, to get the supplemental money done. And I think they are likely to get uh, yet another deal done for all that state and local money. He's not a guy that I was a big fan of. He is a guy I know you know. I know that, that you think well of him. I, he was not my favorite, but he has risen to the occasion. And, and I know, Howard, you've talked to Treasury a lot. The one thing I, I would say is the glasses are not a good look. I, I think he, he could upgrade the, the image now that he's being taken seriously. But, but seriously, he has done a good job, which only distinguishes him farther and more from your, your friend Jared, Jim. Well, he's the one guy in the administration who has been a constant. There's only been one Treasury Secretary. Right. And that's distinguishing. I mean, he's not a limelight seeker. Um, so I think, Jim, in this White House, that's an asset if you want to stick around. And I think he doesn't like going on television. He doesn't like being interviewed on CNBC. He, he strikes me as wanting to get off there as quickly as possible. And, and with, with your former boss, that keeps you around. And he's a deal maker, right? And he and he's making the boss look really good right now, right? With the with the decisions he's making, with the you know, it was the boss's decision to put him in that role. There was some question as to who was going to go in that role early on. Clearly, boss made the right pick on this one. And I got to tell you, I mean, you know, in terms of his, you know, outward facing ability to deal with, you know, all of these issues, and quite frankly, a guy from New York who hasn't been a Washington, Washington insider, if you will, coming into Washington and kind of taking charge and driving the Republican agenda, pretty darn impressive. Well, we've had a lot of conversations this week with clients and potential clients about that. There's a perception, McConnell's been making a lot of noise and about what's gonna happen, what's not gonna happen. As you guys know, because we've all been in the same conversations, what we've been telling people is that the, the administration through Mnuchin 
is driving the the train. McConnell's important. There's no question. But the negotiations to date have been between the Treasury Secretary on the one hand, driving the Republican agenda, and the uh, minority leader in the Senate, Chuck Schumer, and the Speaker of the House. And that's where the real negotiation is. Yeah, you got senators locked in a room with one another, but that's where the action is. I think that's where we see it continuing. And I think the the interesting thing here, yeah, yeah no surprise, a New York businessman's going to be able to work with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. But I think the interesting thing here is his ability and and to to keep McConnell and to keep others from really throwing a monkey wrench into this money going out the door and the the much needed money that's going out the door to keep American workers, you know, you know, to keep American companies moving, to keep workers with dollars coming in the door, all the things that you know it was intended to do. It hasn't been perfect, no, but. I'll tell you, for a government program, uh, government programs that have been rolled out on a really short notice, it's been pretty darn good. It, it has been very impressive that it got stood up so quickly and, and so much money got out. It, and one other thing about Mnuchin that I respect is uh, he says many fewer stupid things than his colleagues in this administration. and And I think that helps keep things moving forward because you don't have to spend a day walking back some dumb thing that got said. But there is uh, some hazard ahead for both parties, for for Washington, more for Treasury maybe and, and the administration. But some of this money went some places that are questionable, not to any of our clients, of course. But there, there is some hazard ahead as uh, Treasury and SBA start taking a look at some of these PPP uh, loans or forgivable grants, whatever we call them. And I think it's going to be, um, I think it's going to be very interesting to see whether that slows down the next phase. And we've seen a clamping down. We've seen some additional language come out tightening the language in terms of what companies need to be looking at, what capital they need to be looking at and liquidity when they're making applications for these loans, because they're really trying to get the money to, you know, folks who really need it. And, and I think, you know, holding the feet to the fire of, of corporate America, if you will, and having them take a pause. And I can't tell you how many folks, small and larger businesses alike called just said, Hey, what do you think about this? Does it fit within the confines? Because they're worried and they should be. I think, you know, we talked about this in the last episode that the next phase of this after the next round of money rolls out the door, I think is very heavy, heavy oversight and heavy, heavy auditing. And folks are going to take a real close look at these dollars. And the silly season comes into play and in September, October, with the politics being Washington, being Washington, and folks are going to be looking for a, a bully pulpit from which to uh, preach. Well, let's separate the the law and policy on the one hand from the media and politics on the other. I mean, there are organizations who took the money and then disclaimed it who were actually entitled to take the money because they met the criteria under the law that they have subsequently returned the money 
talking about the Ruth's Chris's of the world and the Los Angeles Lakers businesses that meet the criteria under the law, but that decided from a brand perspective because that they were getting blasted in the media that they should send it back from where it came. And, and that's a business decision. That's not a, a matter of are they entitled or are they not entitled? And that's, it's really media driven. It's not even so much congressionally driven. It's really media driven because that's the way Congress intentionally wrote the law. And I think transparency has been paramount in pushing forward, pushing these companies to give the money back where they, after the fact, they're doing a gut check because the general public and the news media has held their feet to the fire. And the transparency piece and the piece of this is what kind of drives that. Yeah, I, I two things. One, the overwhelming majority of PPP money that has gone out the door has gone where it was needed, period. And the, it's a program that has succeeded in the overwhelming majority of of the applications and and grants it's some sensational media driven cases yes but there is a real question that SBA and treasury are reverse engineering i think in in response to the media attention and uh, i think in good faith but that's the question of need, of need. You can check every box on the application. You still have to certify that you need the money, that you have no access to the money otherwise, to capital markets, to borrowing. And and that gets tricky because there really is no defined uh, metric to measure whether access to money at any price is, is what is required here. So what, what we have been telling our clients, many, many, many of whom have uh, received the money, uh, some with our, our help, a lot with our help, and none of whom, to my knowledge, Jim and Howard, to my knowledge, none of whom ha has chosen to uh, return the money because they were entitled what we've been telling them is, if you need it, take it. If you don't need it, don't. Just right. checking boxes isn't enough. <clears throat> it It's really a visceral bottom line, literally. If you need it, take it. If you don't, don't. And we have advised some people not to, and they yep. have decided not to because they didn't <laughs> need it. Well, and you and I advised a client that is booming and hiring that even though they could check the boxes, just don't do it. And I think, <laughs> I mean, my view of the language in there is the uncertainty part of it, right? Right. right the right. uncertainty of the world as it is today, you know, leaves you in a position that your business is in jeopardy. You should take the money. And I, I think that's, if you focus in on this uncertainty language, you know, as it's read in the, in, in the most recent guidance, I think that kind of drives your decision making. Look, I, my view is if you don't need money from the government, you never want to take it. I mean, going into business with the government is a, having been on the other side of it is a really bad idea if you don't need it. If you need it, then by all means, you need it. Well, and that brings us, uh, and I recognize this is not as uh, fascinating as our usual political punch out, Jim, 
but but it is very important and and it's what's coming next is the main street lending program where criteria guidance came out just recently on that it's another i believe howard 400 plus billion uh, available it is borrowing it isn't forgivable but it it is the next phase of this and i think a lot of people that we're talking to are going through exactly the the calculus we're talking about here which is uh do i want the government as my partner and this is bigger business right so there's bigger targets there's bigger dollars involved 15,000 employees yeah and it's 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 bigger business it's a bigger target and mark back to your point i mean i have both in government positions as as state general counsel dealt with you know federal government audits of federal dollars and represented private clients it is an onerous process those audits and eventually the oig takes a look as well so you know inspector general that is yes inspector inspector generals take a look at these issues and yeah and 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 it's a very you know onerous process long process and quite frankly a lot of costs associated with it at the end of the day people are going to go to jail yeah i mean there is zero question and again having been the general counsel of a federal finance agency having having run the tarp it's um people are gonna people are gonna go to jail because you cannot put hundreds of billions of dollars trillions of dollars out into the system without people doing bad things that's not a matter of should I take it? Should I not take it? It's in the gray area. It's a judgment call. It's kind. It's tough. Oh, you know, right. I'm not exactly sure whether I meet the criteria. Those people, they may have to give the money back if you're on the wrong side of that. But that isn't a matter of going to jail. But there is going to be outright fraud in all of these programs, especially the small business program. And you can bet your bottom dollar that those inspector generals are going to be out there prosecuting people. We've got a phenomenal team here. Um, our partner, Biz Van Gelder, is an experienced white-collar lawyer and and False Claims Act lawyer, and she's heading up our team, um, advising clients on on those issues. And, um, you know, that's – it's. <laughs> I am sure that – down the road, it may be three, four, five years down, whatever it is, there is going to be a slew of prosecution, prosecutorial activity arising out of these programs. Well, let's talk a shorter run and let's talk about uh, someone who clearly, clearly needs the money, but doesn't yet have an, uh, enough uh, federal assistance. And that is the states and, and cities. And Jim, you were just saying that, that you've obviously served in in state government. Uh, what what happens next here, Jim? Is your friend uh, Leader McConnell right? Do we just start letting states go bankrupt? That that doesn't seem to be that good an idea to me. No way. Chapter nine is not the way out of this. We should not let municipalities and governments go bankrupt. That being said, I think there has to be a, a a rule here where, you know, or a guidepost where if if governments, pension funds, other entities were in a lot of trouble to begin with, um, 
you know, this these dollars are not there to bail these folks out because they weren't managing their house appropriately to begin with. And I think that's where, and I think that's where the Republicans are ultimately going to come from on this, that they are going to, I think we're going to get something done for state and local. We need to get something done for state and local, but we're not bailing out folks that were in trouble pre-COVID. If, if, if COVID exacerbated your problem or caused a problem, we should be there for you as a federal government is the way I think that the, the Republicans will look at this. And this is not going to end up being government bailouts all around the country just because government doesn't run well. And this goes back to what we said earlier. Remember, you know, Mnuchin and the president have both said, we're going to do this. Mm-hmm. So we had a lot of questions this week. Well, McConnell said, and McConnell walked it back a little bit over the course of the week, but it's all about, you know, Mnuchin and Trump are going to drive this train, not um not McConnell, and there's no way Donald Trump is letting a whole bunch of state and states and localities go bankrupt in an election year. Pennsylvania, we're six, we're four to six yeah. billion dollars down in in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and these folks have to pass a budget, or that by law they have to pass a budget budget by June 30. You know, I, without state and local dollars. You don't fill that gap. On on the flip side, guys, this week we saw the Boeing company decide not to take the money. There was $17 billion appropriated under the CARES Act basically for Boeing, for, quote, national security needs. That was Boeing's money. They lobbied like hell for it. And then they went out into the capital markets and raised $25 billion and decided not to take it. What do you make of that? Such a such a smart play in the wake of all the PR issues that Boeing has been suffering as a company over the course of the last year and a half, two years. I, I think it was a very, very smart play on their part. And it kind of, you know, it, it brings them to the forefront in terms of good stewardship of of, of the dollars and, and thinking about the American people and, and not being greedy, you know, in terms of a PR move. Excellent. Absolutely. On the other hand, don't ever come with your hand out again, asking for billions of dollars that could have gone to more productive use um, and then not not take it. So it's a lot. Now, the the G, I think there was a GR issue there, a government relations issue and a public relations issue. And in this instance, the PR folks want out. And I'll tell you, I've had a bunch of conversations this week uh, with people that with companies that are going out and raising money in the capital markets that have thought about taking government money. And by the way, municipalities are able to, to raise money in the capital markets. And so it, it, it's a funky well, yes time. No. It's I a mean, funky time. But it's back to a, a point that Jim was making earlier. Municipalities that were fiscally sound before the crisis may still have access to the credit markets municipalities and states and businesses that would have had trouble raising money before this hit are not are not going to the markets now the the markets are closed to them and it it is just a tough balance to strike the main street lending program for example as you guys well know requires that you demonstrate that you were making money last year 
If you didn't make money in 2019, the program's closed to you. So there is there is certainly an element, bipartisan, Jim, on, on both sides. There is an element of we're not going to save people from a hole that they dug for themselves before this happened. But people who are now in a deep hole because of it, we, we got to help. And and I think you will see that state and local money come. And I agree with you guys. Howard Howard talked me into raising my handicapping uh, of it uh, yesterday. I was saying 60-40, 65-35, you get a deal done. I, I think you're right, Howard. I think it is. It's more in the 80, 20, 90, 10, even for political reasons, but but at at what price? There's now an issue that we're involved in that is suddenly front page news, which is the uh, immunity from liability. What do we make of that? Where where does that fit in this puzzle? Where where did that come from? Where is well, that going? All sorts of companies that are on the leading edge of the quote unquote reopening because it's not even it's not a full reopening but there are all sorts of companies that are on the on the cutting edge and that that want want to be protected if they're going to participate in reopening America they feel like they need to have some downside protection they don't want to spe- spend the next 10 years defending class action lawsuits associated with people getting uh, COVID. There's there's an issue in the states where a bunch of state legislatures and um, governors are um, declaring that if somebody catches the virus, that under their state workers' comp program, it is deemed to be on the job, which has all sorts of implications from an insurer perspective from a employer perspective. So there, there are issues out there like that where if you're operating in this half-opened economy, you're very worried about the implications. And so that's where it's coming from. Yeah, they're extending heart and lung to cops and firefighters and the COVID issue. I think are all good things. Um, you know, the liability issue is going to be a tough one, right? Because you're going to have you know, the trial bar is a tremendously strong lobby in Washington and state capitals. You're friends, Jim, right? Yeah, they are gonna yeah. be they are gonna be all over this thing. And the Chamber of Commerce is gonna be on the other side of them. And they're both, you know, the trial lawyers look at this as a slippery slope the moment you start talking about, you know, immunity from liability, where does it stop? And they are gonna be, you know, loaded for bear on this one, no question. Well, what, what's happening in, in this issue and, and in a number of issues, uh, Medicaid, which I want to come back to in a second, is, is another great example of this. You have pre-existing conditions, if, if you will, to coin a phrase. You have a pre-existing debate about tort reform in this country, business versus trial bar principally is where the action is. And then you overlay this COVID crisis on that. And the tort reform debate gets goes to warp speed and gets twisted and, and distorted in, in this context. And I think that is happening with, with a lot of issues. You have there was a country here, and there were issues going back and forth only two months ago. 
and suddenly this drops on top of them and everything goes on on business steroids. interruption insurance is another really interesting example of this so insurers wrote policies that they issued to companies protect or, or protecting them from business interruption but most of them had an exclusion for pandemics and now you've got all these state legislatures that are contemplating retroactively plugging that loophole. And it's not gonna happen, but I, I do not believe retroactively, it may be a required coverage going forward, but you, you've you got state legislatures trying to rewrite contracts. It's, it's, cra it's crazy what's going on. Abrogating private contracts and, and trying to retroactively amend contracts is just, you know, that's just a, a little too far. You are going to see a number of class actions. They've already started. Um, there's already been a case that's that's now going before the Supreme Court in Pennsylvania as it relates to this issue. We're a big insurance state. My good friend, Mike Considine, who was the insurance commissioner in Pennsylvania, now runs the National Association for Insurance Commissioners. I'm sure he's really busy right now trying to figure out, you know, collectively among insurance commissioners how to handle this crisis and how how to deal with you know their regulated entities across the you know, country. Not with notwithstanding that the president is going to Camp David and that the guidelines are starting to you know end and and that we are quote unquote air quotes if you could see them now reopening. This is going to be really messy until there's a vaccine. This is going to be really messy in all sorts of ways. And the tentacles of this thing are just they're massive. Well, th that's what I wanted to uh, underscore is the hip bone connected to the thigh bone part of it. Just pick any issue. You were talking about business interruption insurance. You can pick any of the issues we have discussed. And you, you start in one place and quickly end up in another because it is an integrated uh, economy. And you can't, for example simply shut down restaurants without impacting real estate, uh, which impacts the financial industry, which impacts the markets and on and on. It, it, is, a, it is a mess. But Howard, let's, let's end on one of uh, the, the current and, and even for you uh, personal notes that I just find absolutely impossible, frankly, which is higher yeah. ed. What, what's, speaking of litigation, there, there are already lawsuits about tuition refunds and, and the rest, but we are very involved on behalf of a number of higher ed clients with, with the government um, assistance that, that they require. They are businesses at, at an ultimate level and they got shut down with everybody else. But how how do we think? Just just try to pull on that thread for a minute and see what unravels. How how do we think higher ed reopens come the fall? God. Does it? I mean, does it? I know you have at least one person in your household who's very taking a distance learning test on the third floor <laughs> as we speak. I can assure you that she does not want to do that again in the fall, and I can <laughs> doubly assure you that I don't want to pay. To Tulane tuition for her to learn remotely yeah. in the fall. 
Um, I, I think it's going to be tough, though. I mean, those what is college like? dorms are petri dishes to begin with, and it's all. I I, I don't know. I, I hate to be negative, but I'm skeptical. And if 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 they don't reopen, the the crushing blow to some college finances is massive and it Jim, it goes back to what you were saying earlier if you came into this in bad shape don't think that the government is going to be there bailing you out of where you were coming into this if you need something to get through kind of the immediate crisis then okay but a lot of universities and colleges i think are re- are going to be in very precarious financial condition and frankly they don't have enough of a voice in washington the small to mid-sized, middle-tier colleges that were really suffering, kind of trying to figure out how to how to make themselves relevant in this world where bigger institutions, bigger libraries, nicer dorms, all these things are so so vitally important in the competitive environment. You know, they are really going to hurt through this process. They are really going to hurt. Well, guys, well let's 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 leave it there. Let's leave it on a positive go, go Mark. note, though. Howard, okay, Zude some positivity, Here, Mark. Here's some positivity. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave the last element of positivity to you because I don't Wait, know. How I to know you're going to the Jersey Shore today. We're going to the Jersey Shore. <laughs> welcome, welcome, we're taking Mark. Ethan and Steph a chicken, and we're gonna see the ocean. Schultz pushed the time for this earlier than Howard and I wanted, so he can go tee off in an hour. So Howard, what what great thing are you doing that's positive today? And then we can say We're goodbye. We're going to take a really, really, really long walk because that's still all we can do in Maryland. But we're going to go out for a nice walk right. on a beautiful Saturday. I like Governor Hogan. That's he good, is. man. Good. All right, guys. Be safe. Have a great Saturday. Hit, Jim, hit him straight. <laughs> I never hit Jim, him are straight. Jim, do you have to wear a mask? We don't have to wear a mask wow. on the course. but. Um, but there are a lot of yeah, social until until Governor Murphy hears this podcast. Right. And then, <laughs> and then that course is getting shut down after this podcast. All right. Thanks for listening. Be safe, everybody. See you soon. Thank you for listening to the Beltway Briefing. If you liked our show, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. And while you're at it, drop us a rating. To learn more about the Beltway Briefing or Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, please visit our website at copublicstrategies.com.